Now Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. It's very good to be with you all this morning. I do wish all of you a very happy Mother's Day. Um, I have I've had the pleasure of preaching on Mother's Day um, a few times uh, in my time at Sojourn, and I just wanted to take a moment just to put a point uh, on this particular day uh, before we get into our sermon text. Isn't, isn't it a wonder, and I think we should think about this every once in a while, isn't it a wonder that every one of us has come into this world through a woman? truly incredible that God designed human life to come into the world this way. Now, our world can popularly celebrate this day, and yet it it misses a lot of the ironies. For instance, I know that there are thankful mothers in this room, and I know that there are women here who long to be mothers who are not yet mothers. There are women and men in this room who who have wonderful relationships with their mother and others that do not. There are women uh, who have had wonderful relationships with their children in this room and others who don't. There are women here who are holding newborns in their arms right now and there are women who have lost children before they ever got to hold them. So today's banner is simple enough, Mother's Day. And yet, our lives and relationships and our experiences are very complex. But I do want you to know that the Lord sees every one of them. He sees you. And for some of you today is a celebration, and praise God for that. We will rejoice with you. For some of you today is something else. Confusing, hard, sad, maybe upsetting. We will mourn with you. We do mourn with you. As the church, we celebrate Mother's Day not only in obedience to the fifth commandment and not because, not only because we love our mothers and are thankful for them, but we celebrate it as a confession of faith almost. Recognizing today is an extension of our confidence in the way that God works. God works through women. Genesis and Isaiah give incredible weight and glory to the seed of the woman, to our sisters and daughters and mothers and wives as new types of Eve. 
the Christian church, which is the city of God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the way God is building his kingdom in the world. It comes, it comes by the family of God. It comes by children born, received, and loved. It comes by mothers. This is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Eve, the Jerusalem from above, the mother of us all, according to Galatians 4, the mother of all the living. And so with that, with that weight in mind, I want to wish you again, all of you, a very happy Mother's Day. Yeah. So today we're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and it's, it's here we've said that, it, that, that Jesus, the chief apostle, is himself working by the Spirit in and through his apostles. And we have been talking about what that means for our lives and our mission as the church. So the first quarter of Acts records the mission of the apostles in Jerusalem, and it's a very impressive mission. As we saw last week at Pentecost, the the Spirit falls upon the apostles and disciples, and they begin to speak in the different tongues of man. People from every tribe and tongue are there to hear the proclamation of the gospel. And it's, it's it's a reversal of Babel. Instead of disunity and confusion, there is understanding and unity. 3,000 people are baptized and join the church. They're brought around the table and they're breaking bread together as God's people. They're brought underneath the apostles' teaching. It's just, it's a great success. And it really, it confirms what Jesus told the apostles, that, that repentance and forgiveness would be offered to all the nations starting in Jerusalem. But it also comes with great opposition because almost immediately war breaks out. The apostles and new disciples of Jesus really don't have time to sit back and relax and just sort of fully enjoy Pentecost. Within days they're at war. There are arrests and imprisonments and court hearings and warnings and vicious beatings. And before it's all over, there will be a a martyrdom with the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7. But Acts 2 ends with the disciples attending the temple daily. They're worshiping God together with one mind in the temple. And, and we, we won't see this today, but really between the chapters of 3 and 5, there are more than a dozen references to the temple. It's a battle in the temple because that's where the apostles have set up shop to pray and preach. We might even call this first part of Acts the battle for Jerusalem or the battle over Jerusalem because that's very much what it is. But our text begins with Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, Luke writes, which means 3 p.m., three in the afternoon. The hour of prayer was associated with the hour of incense. And as we'll see, it appears the angel of the Lord is slowly handing over the keys of the old temple, Israel, to the new temple, the disciples of Christ, the followers of Jesus. So Peter and John come to the temple at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. This is the same hour that Jesus died and was offered up on the cross, which links his death with the incense offering. But it's also the same time that the veil in the temple was torn, which, which gave all people access to God's presence. So it's, it's no longer limited to just the temple. Anyone can enter God's presence in any condition. But it's here at this hour that they meet this man. So let's read verse two again. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. 
Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So this man who has been lame from birth is outside of the temple at what is called the beautiful gate. Perhaps he Perhaps he's just simply unable to get into the temple, but more likely he's outside in order to seek alms from worshipers at one of the temple entrances. And according to the book of Leviticus, concern and provision for the poor and needy was was one of the things that was expected of God's people. So it makes sense that this man would consider this particular place as a promising location to have his needs met. Now, it isn't entirely clear which gate was the beautiful gate. The direct translation says that it's the temple gate called beautiful. But the word means fruitful or blooming. It could be the the Shushan gate, the east gate, where the high priest would enter in with the sacrifice for Yom Kippur. Coincidentally, the east gate is, is also connected to Ezekiel 47 and Ezekiel's vision of water issuing from the temple exiting the east gate, and this water growing in depth, bringing life, refreshment, and renewal to the world. But whatever the meaning, it's lamentable that something very ugly is happening, a lame man uncared for and kept out of God's presence at the place where beautiful things should be happening. Nothing beautiful has happened to this man until Peter and John come to him. So the man requests alms from Peter and John. The word alms is derived from the Greek word for mercy. So this man is is begging for, literally, for coined compassion. He's looking for mercy in the form of money. Now what's also ironic about this scene is that the gates of the temple that he's sitting in front were adorned with silver and gold, with gems and intricate carvings. That's, That's the temple beautiful. The temple has all the wealth to give, but this man is reduced to begging at its gates, not benefiting from them, begging at them. He's like Lazarus in the parable of Jesus, and the temple authorities are like the rich man. The temple and its priests have done nothing for him. They don't give him any of the gold or silver that's there. They don't provide any compassion or mercy for him, but Peter and John do. Peter responds, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. So Peter says that he doesn't have any silver or gold. Now we could take that to mean that Peter and John don't have any money. Perhaps they don't, but we shouldn't miss that the, the words that he's using here are temple talk. Silver and gold were adornments of the temple. So the man is asking for money and Peter basically answers two questions, or sort of addresses two, uh, two situations. Peter says, I don't have any money, but simultaneously he's saying, but even the wealth of the temple cannot help you. What I do have, what I truly possess, I give to you. What Peter does have, he is ready to give. And truly, Sojourn, that is a a principle of life in the church. 
of life in the fa- excuse me, in the family of God. The apostles and disciples have the spirit in order to share the spirit. They have the word in order to proclaim and share the word. They have bread in order to break bread and pass it out and share bread. It's even a practice within the church at this time that they they treat their property and possessions that way. It was all meant to be shared. If there was a need in the church, they were willing to sell it and distribute the proceeds. A principle of God's people is this. If you have it, you give it. If you have it, you share it. That's the principle that Peter's operating on. And the thing that he has to give is a name. It's not gold or silver, a name more precious than gold or silver. It's the name of Jesus. And by that name, he raises this man and heals him. The name. It used to be the temple that held the name of God. In the temple, Yahweh's name and presence was, was, supposed to just, was supposed to take up residency. It was supposed to live there. The name was supposed to dwell there and radiate out, giving life and health and prosperity to Israel and to all the nations. It used to be the place where people sought healing and life and communion with God. That's where they went. That's where they knew to go. The conflict between the apostles and the temple here is not just institutional power. It's it's a conflict between death and life. The life that the apostles are offering, are giving in the name of Jesus, and the death that the temple is handing out, the life that it's not giving out as it should. But as Luke is showing us here, the name of God is inhabiting a new temple, and the old temple's doors are slowly closing. The temple's time is ending. Jesus' name is now the new memorial. I, I put it in italics, new memorial. His is the new memorial name that is taking up residency. And it's not just in the temple, it's outside the temple too. It's everywhere. In Jesus' church, his body, it's Jesus' church. It's his body that now houses the name of God, the name that heals the name that gives life, the name that redeems. It's now from Jesus' followers that life and health will radiate out into the world as God blesses and redeems the nations. Peter takes this man's hand. He lifts him up. And immediately the Lord gives strength to both his feet and ankles. I love that. I didn't look into that, but I just love that. Feet and ankles. In raising him up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, there's a demonstration of the authority and the power of Christ through the miracle. So Peter is confident in the power of the name of Jesus and he appeals to Christ's authority in doing this act. It serves. It serves as a testimony to the authority of Christ and to the truth of the apostles' message. And as Peter will say shortly after this, This wasn't possible because of our power or our piety. It was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers who did this through his son, Jesus. 
See, this is truly a resurrection. This man is raised up, not just from the ground, but from death to life. And as we read, the people see him walking and praising God, and they're astonished. They recognize that this is the same man, the same man, lame from birth, whom they have seen at the temple entrance for over 40 years. We find that out in chapter 4. For over 40 years, he's been here. They see the lame man praising God, much like the disciples had praised God following the descent of the Spirit on Pentecost. And perhaps, perhaps they thought, is this a sign of the kingdom? It might have even made them think of Isaiah 35, five through six. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, unst deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See in Isaiah 35, the eyes being opened and the lame leaping comes in response actually to rain coming down. It's a direct parallel to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit raining down on Pentecost and creating new life. This man is healed and he goes into the temple as part of the new temple. He is made new and can now enjoy right worship with God in his new house with his new brothers and sisters. So the church is now the place where he can find the Lord. Excuse me. The church is now the place where people can find the Lord. They can find forgiveness, restoration, new life, a family to belong to, provision, care, food, a new purpose in living, and in this move, in this, in this exchange, in this, Peter and John are now actually new priests. They're new priests filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are properly attending to one of God's sheep in his house. See, the real keys to God's house are being handed over from the unfaithful shepherds of the old house, the Pharisees. They're being given to a new set of shepherds in a new home. Perhaps... If we think about it just a little bit, we can kind of hear in this moment Jesus' words echoing, Jesus' words to Peter echoing in the background, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, care for my sheep. Sojourn, you, you are the dwelling place of God. God really lives here with us. And you are called to do what the brick and mortar temple could never do. You are called to be fruitful and to give of what you have until the nations are discipled and the earth is filled with God's glorious presence. We didn't get to read this earlier. Um, I didn't talk to Britt in time, but we're gonna have a reading from, from 1 Peter chapter two. Peter says this, this is Peter, the same Peter. And he says this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Once you had not been shown mercy, 
but now you've been shown mercy. According to Peter, we, you, are the brick and mortar of the temple, and we are priests in the temple. And all of you are called to serve in this temple. You are called to pray. You are called to holiness. You are called to flee from idolatry. You are called to minister to, at other beautiful gates on behalf of those who still need atonement for their sin, compassion, and mercy for their need, namely the poor, the needy, and our non-Christian neighbors. Like priests in the, Old in the Old Testament, you are called to make sacrifices so that others can draw near to God. And that means stepping out into the world to offer yourselves as living sacrifices for the sake of those who are far from God, just like Peter and John did. And what you have, just like Peter spoke, what you have, whatever gift of the Spirit it is, you freely offer. What your parish has, what it has to offer, what you all have to offer as a family, you should freely give. I once heard an adoptive family say, if we have such a good family, why wouldn't we share it? If we have such a good family, why wouldn't we invite someone else into it? There's someone out there who doesn't have a good family. They might just need ours. Sojourn, you have something to offer. Your parish has something to offer. Through you and our neighborhood parishes, we are manifesting the redemptive presence of God to our neighbors simply by living ordinary life as the human temple of God. We are offering, we are offering what we do have, what we truly have. We offer Jesus and every single gift that he's given to this body. And we do that to invite people to draw near to God, not to languish at his doorstep. We are the medium through which God intends to proclaim the gospel and our lives are meant to adorn the gospel message and help our neighbors to interpret that message. We are together called to be a persuasive witness to the gospel by the manner in which we love one another. And so we pray that our neighbors will come to believe the gospel as they see its implications lived out within our life as a church. And this is costly and it's difficult, but it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's worth giving our lives to. And as you carry out the mission of the Prince of Life, you and we, we will, we will arouse the opposition of the forces of darkness. We can't avoid that. We can't avoid it any more than the apostles did. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, we see a picture of our mission accomplished. I want you to go and look at it again. God fulfills his original purpose for his creation and the dwelling place of God expands to fill the entire new heavens and new earth. It's the ending the Bible teaches us to expect. 
God is expanding his presence through his people to the ends of the earth. His desire is to build a worldwide temple where Jesus is the cornerstone of that project and you, like living stones, laying down your lives to see the temple expand and to welcome and care for every person at your door and around your table. We have wealth to share with each other, Sojourn. It's wealth that we can extend to our neighbor and the needy in real ways that will never run out. It's really not beautiful at all if only we get to enjoy it. (laughs) Scrooge was not a happy man. It's one thing as the people of God that we must be about. Compassion and mercy are our currency. It's the gift that we give. We work in the power of the Spirit in the name of Christ and we offer Christ as our greatest possession, as the greatest gift, the greatest treasure. So if you have it, and I know that you do, if you have it, give it. If you have it, share it. And when you do, think about Ezekiel 47 and that water that issues from the temple, streams of living water that are flowing out into the world and making it live, making it new. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the Prince of Life. We thank you that he sits at your right hand and reigns as he brings every enemy under his feet. We ask that you would give us strength and courage to carry out the mission of our King and Savior, no matter what opposition may arise, no matter what hesitancies we have, what fears we hold, help us. Make us faithful and audacious like the apostles were so that as we proclaim your gospel and your excellencies, as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that you would draw and heal your people and thereby extend your church over and over again. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.